Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome one of the most talked about bands in indie rock. Grizzly Bear joins us for a conversation and live performance. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from Metal Giants, Slayer. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Mr. Cott, as you know, it is a well-known fact that Google would like to control pretty much everything in media. You know, they want to be the new newspapers. They want to be the new uh, cartographers giving us maps. They want to go into the music business. A week or so ago, they rolled out a new feature which will enable people doing a Google search. I refuse to use the word Googling. Just not a good verb. Uh, (laughs) People doing a Google search for a band will now get among the first three or four listings click-throughs that will bring them to hearing a full track by that group. This is an initiative in part, I think, to tackle uh, Apple's hugely popular uh, iTunes store because the second click after sampling this track would be to one of a number of sites that will enable you to buy the track. Google would like to get into the music business in a big way, bigger than just uh, hosting uh, links to bands' web pages, which are now further down on that list of, of initial sites, or uh, you know, lyrics to songs, Wikipedia entries, that sort of thing. They want to get into bringing music to people. Without a doubt, Google is becoming a major player in the music business as it is in all other forms of media. And it's exciting news for a lot of artists who are figuring out, you know, how are we going to get paid for our music? What's fascinating to me is we had this hierarchy in the late 90s of the big corporations funneling all the music out to the masses. You know, the Warner Brothers and the Sonys and the EMIs of the world, they were basically running the music business. Now we've got a new corporate hierarchy in charge of the music business. Google is right up there with MySpace and iTunes, soon to be on the market, Spotify. So is it a new ball? boss replaces the old boss kind of scenario where you've just got a different set of names and corporations running the music business. We'll find out soon.
That is the one and only Lady Gaga with uh, one of several hits she has at the moment, Paparazzi. Inexplicably, Mr. Cott, we have yet to discuss the Lady Gaga phenomena <laughs> on this show. Many people are probably grateful for that. Yet, as Kai Rizdahl, our colleague, says, it's time to do the numbers. Let, let's take a look at what's going on on the pop charts. She's making history, Jim. We have to look at the numbers on Lady Gaga because at a time when uh, CD sales are tanking, Lady Gaga is selling a lot of records, and she's had four number one hits in a row from her debut album, the first time that's been done in the Billboard Pop Songs history, which is a pretty big deal. Paparazzi, the fourth number one from that album, following uh, three of your favorite songs, I know, Jim, Just Dance, Poker Face, and Love Game from that debut that was released last year, still going strong. She has a uh, major tour planned, made a lot of news recently because that tour was originally planned as an arena tour. She was going to open for Kanye West. Yeah. Kanye had a few personal problems Kanye's along the way, down, yeah. dropped out, so now it's Lady Gaga's tour. Apparently, this is going to be one of the biggest spectacles ever put into a theater-sized show in the history of pop music. You know, A lot of money's going to be spent. But what a phenomenon. The last year, this goes by, you listen to that music, you think this could be like a Hillary Duff in a, singing in a sweatshirt and blue jeans and, and yeah. gym shoes. It, well, it's cutesy dance pop. You think of that when you hear it, but then you look at the visuals and the, and the videos and this upcoming tour, and it's a completely different phenomenon. She looks like Mud Club, New York City, 1978, <laughs> yeah. avant-garde, underground, weirder than Madonna. But I don't know. I can't figure out what the appeal is, to tell you the truth. Well, I think I guess it, the appeal might be that every generation needs its own version of Madonna. and or Lady, Britney Spears. And Lady Gaga is it for the moment. You're right. I mean, even Britney Spears is old news right now for yeah. uh, you know a lot of her fans because a lot of her fans are probably in their late 20s, early 30s now. She began as a teen a decade ago. Lady Gaga is filling that gap. More news. We followed up on uh, the Michael Jackson movie debut. We talked about it last week. The movie is doing gangbusters business. This is it, the documentary of the preparation and the rehearsals for what was to be his final tour. Not to be confused with the greatest hits album, This Is It, or the song written with Paul Anka, This Is It. All of those enterprises hugely successful. The movie pulled in $101 million worldwide in its first five days. Initially, they were talking about a two-week run. Well, that's already been extended. You that was shocking. Right? <laughs> oh, they're going to keep it in the theaters. Or only two weeks, only two weeks. Ah, now we'll keep it there. Exactly. And then uh, the This Is It soundtrack, which is essentially a greatest hits, topped by that one quote unquote new song, the, the, the song co written with Paul Anka, that was basically a leftover from about 20 years ago. Nonetheless, despite the fact that they're reselling us a lot of old Michael Jackson music on this uh, This Is It soundtrack album, it debuted at the top of the Billboard charts and sold 373,000 copies, one of the biggest selling debut weeks for any album in Jim, that's a word uh, we've said a few times on this show over the last few years. A huge issue in the music industry. We're constantly trying to get new information about what kind of effect this is having on the market. What is the real impact of the fact that uh, peer-to-peer file sharing is now the preferred method of distributing music in the world? Yeah, because the industry as it has existed is very chicken sky-falling, you know, Mm -hmm. end of the world downloading music online. That's right. They're telling us that peer-to-peer file sharing is killing the music industry. A recent study here by a British think tank called Demos indicates that, in fact, the opposite is true, that uh, the more people download and share music, the more they are likely to buy it. Their study found that the person who shares music files illegally, quote-unquote, is spending an average of $120 a year on music, 77 British pounds, versus $54 or 33 British pounds for those who don't download music. So in other words, what they're saying is that people who are downloading and sharing music online 
are getting more excited about music, are learning more about music, and are buying the stuff that they really want as part of their collection. The counter to that argument is that the British phonographic industry, the BPI as they're called, estimates that 7 million UK users are downloading music files illegally every year, and that's costing their industry 331 million annually. So they're basically saying, you know, this is costing us money. This study is saying no. In fact, the opposite is true. So, in the context of these laws that are being imposed by European governments, we already see in France, they are imposing this three strikes and you're out law, basically saying that if you are downloading music and you are caught doing it three times, you're off the internet. The UK is considering a similar measure. What does this do to music sales? Well, in fact, you'll be killing your music sales if you are pulling these downloaders off the net for sharing music files. Well, speaking of downloading, uh, Greg, the other big story that people have been waiting for forever is when will we have access online to purchase the Beatles catalog? We saw those uh, remastered releases a couple of months ago, got tons of coverage. You still can't go onto iTunes or any other service and download a Beatles song. However, the Mm. Beatles, Apple Corps, and EMI are now making available a little USB drive shaped like an apple, like the (laughs) Beatles Apple record that you can uh, plug into your computer after you buy this thing for $330, and you will then have access to the remastered Beatles tracks from those 14 albums. So they don't have a problem with putting the music out digitally. They just seem to have a problem with selling it at an online store, Mm -hmm. which is just inconceivable. That's one of the questions I get asked most often on my blog and via email. When am I going to be able to have access to Beatles tracks? And the answer is like, who knows? But now you can buy an Apple for $330. You're listening to Sound Opinions. song called Two Weeks from Grizzly Bear, their third album, Becca Timmis, that came out this year. The group started rather modestly in uh, 2004 when uh, singer and band founder Edward Drost uh, recorded a bunch of music on a tape recorder in his bedroom, took that project out on the road, and brought a few fellows in to play the instruments. Christopher Bear, Chris Taylor, Daniel Rawson, and the debut album, Horn of Plenty, came out in 2004, followed up by Yellow House in 2006 a big indie breakthrough for them. And then now Vecca Timist, their third album, has everybody paying attention to them. Grizzly Bear's track record speaks for itself. They've opened for people like Radiohead and Paul Simon. Beyonce and Jay-Z were seen at one of their shows earlier this year. No so, greater endorsement. I mean, you talk about buzz, right? Yeah, this, this band has it. On a sleepy Sunday morning, that's very un-rock and roll time no. when we did this uh, live interview and performance with the band, but they were kind enough to join us in front of a live audience at the House of Blues on a Sunday morning, and we began the conversation by asking lead singer Ed Drost about his musical background. You you said, you know, you you sort of constructed this album starting, you know, with, with computer technology, and yet your family has, has, has a sort of a background in, in music. Did you absorb any of that when you were growing up? I know your mom was a music teacher, right? And uh, a grandparent had some pretty heavy-duty yeah. uh, musical credentials as well. Yeah, um, I did. I mean, actually, I'm the only one in the band without any formal training, so that's the funny part about it. Uh, I didn't really ever study music, and uh, I was just around it a lot, and I went to school for journalism, and then things changed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. When you started evolving the project into a, into a live band, what were your thoughts about where this was going to go musically? Did, did the other guys, what did they bring to it in terms of changing the way you envisioned the way Grizzly Bear was going to sound? There was never really any intention in the beginning to make it actually a career. It was sort of one of those things that I thought my mom and some friends would buy at other music and it would be printed in like 200 copies or something 
which is actually basically what happened. But um, we got it in our heads that we had to put together a live show and uh, reinterpreting those weird songs and trying to figure out a way to play them live was sort of how the band found its sound. And then Daniel brought songs in and, and everyone started writing together and that's sort of where like the real band began, was sort of in trying to reinterpret those songs for a live setting. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to um, the making of the new album and how that changed from the second one. But we might as well uh, get a song from you guys. So what are you going to play for us? I'm going to play All We Ask. Cool. In this old house, I'm not Yeah. 
That was All We Ask by Grizzly Bear, live on Sound Opinions from the House of Blues in Chicago. We'll have more with Grizzly Bear coming up next from Sound Opinions, from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Then for something completely different, Greg and I turn our attention to Slayer. Our haven on the southern point is calling us. Our haven on the southern point is calling us. And faced with all the obvious, so carry out. Avert your eyes from all of this, make it all back. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Our guests this week are the members of the band Grizzly Bear. We spoke to them in front of a live audience at the House of Blues in Chicago. You are hearing a little bit of the song Knife, a track from their breakthrough second album, Yellow House. Now they're touring on the big third record, Vecca Timist. And during our conversation, I asked lead singer Ed Drost about the evolution of Grizzly Bear's recordings. So the first album, uh, as we said, originated pretty much as a bedroom recording, uh, Horn of Plenty. Yellow House is beginning to have more of a band effort. But I've read interviews uh, with you, Ed, where you were saying that you really wanted, with album number three, Vecca Timis, to see if you could write as a group, recorded in, in upstate New York in the Catskills. Is that, is that right? Or, or to have more of a uh, collective spirit to the album? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just what happened. Yellow House was extremely collaborative as well. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like there was. It was just at this point. I think we were bringing music to one another at earlier stages in the development, so that people could get involved. It wasn't like someone had a song and finished it, and then was like, "Okay, this is done." It was much more like, "I have a vague idea. Let's build off of it." Well, well Dan, what did what did you feel about this band uh, when you joined it? What? Uh, how did you feel you were going to fit in with what Ed was doing? Did you feel like, okay, I'm I'm gonna my songs really work with his or I have a different um, take on it. No, I mean it was interesting because I before I joined the band I was doing a lot of extremely overlayered home demos of things that I didn't actually expect to play for anyone and I hadn't really played live almost ever. Um so I, I mean I joined the band because I knew Chris and Chris from college and I really respected them and I thought they were amazing musicians and I really wanted to just play in a band with them and and I heard Ed's album and thought it was amazing. So I mean, I didn't know how it would work. And when we did Yellow House, we really didn't know how how it was going to work. But I mean, it was a lot of these strange home demos actually just kind of collected and a few songs that the band did together. But it was a lot of this kind of weirdly overlayered stuff that we just tried to see how it would work together. And then the process of playing that stuff live and touring more, we kind of started to gel more as a band and developing more of a band sound. So by the time we got to Vecca Timis, there was it was a lot easier to bring an idea very early on and play it together as a group. Mm-hmm. The last two albums have both been named after the locations where they were recorded. Did those rooms influence how the songs were written and how they ended up sounding? Is that why 
seem like pretty yeah. profound in terms of the impact they had. That yellow house, what was it, Ed's mom's mm-hmm. house, right? And Vecca Timmis, can explain Vecca Timmis, because not everybody knows what that means. It's an uninhabited island off of Cape Cod. We, we haven't actually been there. We just had spent time in the area. Another, We went from mom's to grandmother's house. I mean, Vecca Timmis was recorded in multiple locations, but that was... We had been on Edmwood's Hole, which is on the mainland part of Cape Cod, at this like very small little cottage, and uh, we really enjoy recording ourselves with as Chris, recording engineer and producer, and doing all his own rig because it gives us a lot of freedom. And but um, I don't know. What, I mean, what, how do you feel about using spaces for recording? I mean, I think we've sort of grown to the point where we, we like almost need to be in a space. I feel. I feel like a lot of like how the record comes out sounding is just sort of us hanging out and making food together and, uh, you know, kind of waking up and working on music. And, like, the album never has, like, a... We never set out with, like, a theme in mind or there's some vague ideas as to kind of directions we might want to take things, but it's all just kind of pretty general. I mean, the album sort of takes shape just in us sort of interacting with one another. So naming it after the space where we did it sort of feels like a, an appropriate bookend. Nothing, nothing more than just sort of like this capsule around the medicine in the pill. You know, mm-hmm. you know the, the space is so integral. When you take it out of that space and start performing it live, does that change the music a lot for you guys? Or in, in terms of how you want to approach it at, once you get out of that studio recording environment? I mean, I think, I think uh, you know with most of our songs like because there is a lot of layering and sort of multiple vocals happening and different textures and stuff we always have to sort of readdress a song and find ways of recreating those textures and stuff and um so yeah things change a little bit i feel like with the new album stuff is stuff that was actually recorded is maybe closer to how we actually sound as a live band but for yellow house some some songs were, were like completely reimagined you know mm-hmm. yeah one of the cool things i remember is that we didn't actually play with a bass for a really long time and chris came in with the clarinet and pitch shifted it and that was like functioning as our bass for like the first couple of tours we did <laughs> i mean now we, we have a bass but that was like sort of we're trying to figure out how to replace instruments that most people would use it with like pedals and Mm-hmm. Other things. Well, clearly something's working. I mean, you guys have played the Pitchfork Festival and and Lollapalooza. These giant crowds of people in the parks. Th- this was killing me as I saw it make the round of the blogs. You had Jay Z and Beyonce at a show uh, last month, <laughs> sitting and there's like video of it on YouTube, right? Of him like really grooving out to you. That's got to be just what planet did I wake up on this morning, right? <laughs> Jay-Z's planet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all live on Jay-Z's planet. We're just lucky to be here. Jay-Z's world, we just live in it. Did he pay to get in? Or do you have him on the list? It's a free show. (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) He might be here today for all we know. (laughs) Let's uh, let's get another song, with or without Jay-Z. What are you going to play for us? Um, We're going to play Foreground. It's a little early in the morning, so forgive me if I croak a bit. (laughs)
This is really the brunch set. Yeah. It feels kind of like a recital. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're like graduating from on a Sunday morning. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, foreground from uh, Grizzly Bear. We're here at the House of Blues. You're listening to Sound Opinions at House of Blues with an audience and uh, Grizzly Bear. Guys, it's a treat to have you here. A lot of stuff has happened with the band in the last year. It's been a it's got to be a terrific year for you guys in terms of just reaching a broader audience with your music. Los Angeles Philharmonic, you played with in 2008, I believe, right? Radiohead, we're involved in a tour with them. Played some shows with Paul Simon. Did you have any, any interaction with any of the above? And uh, what was that experience like with Simon, Radiohead, and the Philharmonic all in, all in a space of a few months? It was really crazy. <laughs> Went through, went through multiple layers of just like, I don't deserve this. This is crazy. It's really cool. Did you ever actually get a chance to talk to, you know, Simon? I mean, did he actually give yeah, you some career, pull you aside and, son, let me tell you a few things about the music. came to our rehearsal space. He came to our rehearsal space. Well, he asked us to play at his, his concert series thing. And um, he was like, yeah, I just, I want to stop by and just check out the rehearsal. We're like, Okay. So he, he just, to make came, sure he he just came and sat there and watched us while we played his songs. Coached uh, coached really nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that one's working pretty well, but this one, I just don't think you're like really bringing the joy out of it. And we're like, okay. <laughs> like, wow. Um, <laughs> Dan, do you know that joy chord that we played? <laughs> joy chord? C major? Or I don't know what it was. Anyway, so. They add a little bit of 50 ways to leave your lover into this one, yeah. boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Well, the other thing we have to ask you about collaboration-wise is uh, is this new B-side with Michael McDonald, <laughs> the, the voice of the... Now, I, you know, there's much debate here. You know, is this postmodern irony? Is oh, this... No. What is it? But, you know, you guys were soundchecking that Fender Rhodes, and yeah. you were playing Doobie songs. We are full-on fans. The thing, yeah, no I mean, joke. It's the kind of thing that... It, it's a, I think it, he's an amazing singer, and though it is... And it's an amazing performance. It's just the reason it feels... It's so unlikely. It's such an unlikely combination that it does, you can't help but, it, it is just kind of joyful. I mean, it's, it is, I guess it's funny because it's so strange. It's such a strange combination. But he's such an amazing singer, and we really do. I mean, I love his, some of his songs. He's an amazing songwriter and singer. I'll just wait out the evening. You'll only beat me dry. Yes, you'll From a good place. It doesn't come from an ironic place. I remember really okay. sitting there, like, kind of just like adding some vocal effects to his vocal, kind of all by myself in the studio. And I was just like, oh, that was a really powerful, powerful. Just listening to stuff over and over again, it hit me like every time. I mean, I, it's legitimately an well, amazing, legit. amazing performance, I think. But your vocal style, uh, the four of you, could not be further away. But I wish I wish it were closer. Now I find myself now in, now in shows I find myself trying to do some of his vocal embellishments <laughs> just for fun. It's like a way of, I don't know. So you I guys, think he did a better performance. I kind of prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to break into a, like an interpolation of what a fool believes in the middle of uh, one of your songs? It's That's a new, cool. It's a new bridge. To while you're, you yeah. were going to get, come on, give it. Give, give us... <laughs> 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 All right, that's great. Uh, I got I to ask you about those harmonies, though. That uh, it's a big part of this record. The the way the voices meld together a- as these guys were coming into the band. Did you envision that kind of thing happening, Ed, or was that something that just oh, hey, these guys can really sing? Let's 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 figure out a way to use this. I didn't actually think. No, I didn't know there was going to be like a four four singers. But then it's like yeah. when each person comes, and then you're like, oh, here's a part, it would be really cool, and then someone tries it out, and, and, you know, as I was getting to know everyone, and we're all getting to know each other, we all realized that we can sing together. And it's also cool, and when, when, at least when we first met, that, you know, you had, with Horn and Plenty, there was this really interesting, like, style of layering vocals that was make, make these very unlikely harmonies that I'd never heard, and when I would try to do harmonies at home, it was all this very, like, layered, arranged kind of style, and kind of melding that, and then all the band kind of jumping in on it for him. And it just really worked. It was like a funny coincidence that yeah. we were both kind of 
experimenting with that kind of thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Cool stuff. Um, you guys are on a tight schedule today. We've got to get you out of here, but yeah. uh, we'd love you to play Our last song. another song. What, what have you got for us? We'll do while you wait for the others. Are you going to give a little are riff you? at the end? I'm going mm. to do, do as much Michael McDonald embellishment as I can. While you wait for the others To make it all worthwhile All your useless pretensions Weighing on my time You could beg for forgiveness As long as you like Or just wait out the evening You'll only bleed me to right Yes, you'll only bleed me to right So I coming out early. Thank you. While You Wait for the Others by Grizzly Bear, much closer to the version on Vecatimus than the McDonald, but you can keep trying, Daniel. <laughs> Chris, Chris, Daniel, up. and Ed, Grizzly Bear, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Me. 
To listen to Grizzly Bear's complete live performance, visit soundopinions.org. To comment on our conversation with them or to share any of your critical opinions on the air, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. We're going to take a quick break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And when we return, Greg and I will review the new album from Metal Giants, Slayer. Plus, it will be Greg's turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media if you were being lulled by Grizzly Bear in our last segment. <laughs> well, wake up. That is Slayer on Sound Opinions with a track called American from their new album World Painted Blood, the 10th studio album. Slayer emerged in the early to mid-80s and quickly became one of the four cornerstone bands of speed or thrash metal, along with Megadeth, Metallica, and Anthrax, and I think uh, even the most devoted fans of any of those groups would say Slayer were the most extreme. Mm -hmm. They quickly raised the ire of the uh, censors of the world, the uh, Parents Music Resource Center, Tipper Gore, shocked by the satanic lyrics and the songs about mass murder. (laughs) In fact, you know, Slayer were always kind of portraying these horror stories, much like Stephen King would, Mm -hmm. uh, in song. And it didn't matter much anyway, because Tom Araya's famous cookie monster growl, you could barely tell what he was singing about anyway. The appeal of Slayer has always been the hit you right between the eyes impact of a, of a sledgehammer to the head, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you keep that up for two decades? Have they done it the tenth time they've gone into the studio? World Painted Blood arrived, my review copy, Greg, in a biohazard bag. That's <laughs> always a good sign. And uh, there are four different album covers floating out there. If you put them all together, you get a map of the world made out of skulls and covered with dripping blood. <laughs> yes, topical stuff. Several of the songs on this new album, Greg, as the cover might indicate, are political. Slayer is talking about religious fanaticism changing the world. Uh, This is one of the old-fashioned, non-political horror story songs. It's called Beauty Through Order, and it's the tale of a Hungarian countess, Elizabeth Bathory, who murdered young virgins in the villages she oversaw, drained them of their blood, and bathed in it to preserve her youth and beauty. I I honestly am not making that up. (laughs) It was an inspiration when uh, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. So here is the mighty slayer with a little bit of a horror story on Sound Opinions. Get it! 
Beauty Through Order from Slayer, its 10th studio album, World Painted Blood. Jim, as you mentioned, this band got in a lot of trouble with the Tipper Gores of the world in the 80s, the, the Blue Bloods who are seeing all sorts of satanic imagery and saying, naughty, naughty, can't do that, a warning sticker on the album cover. Now, some of the shock tactics have worn off a bit. I mean, we kind of know what Slayer is going to sing about before they even start. Yeah. There's going to be a song about damning of organized religion, and there's going to be some depictions of torture, and there's going to be a political rant, as we played at the top with Americon. I mean, we kind of know the subject matter already. What we're left with, once the shock tactics are gone, is a great band. I would argue one of the great American rock bands of the last 30 years. Forget about genre. And we're back to the original lineup, which I think is really key. Yeah. Dave Lombardo has been in and out of the band as a drummer. This man is an unbelievable drummer. And it's interesting to me how the, the drums have sort of been mixed higher in this record. It's almost like a lead instrument in a lot of ways. Uh, right alongside the guitars of Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman. Araya, too, you pointed out that the, the Cookie Monster vocals. I actually hear some more actual singing on yeah, this he, record he's trying than I to have sing in the past. More, yeah. The last few records have been more built around speed and, and just that huge aggression that they're able to muster. On this record, I hear, I hear more texture and melody. It's another fine Slayer record. I don't think you can go wrong with this band right now. The last three or four records have been really good after some rough spots in the 90s. So I'm buy it all the way on World Painted Blood. I I will agree, Greg. This is a buy it record. Obviously, it is not for everybody. But I have told many people, uh, more even than the records, you know, go see Slayer live sometime. Even if you think you don't like this genre, there is an undeniable appeal of like, you you know, doing that thing where you lay on the hood of your car at the end of a runway and the jets take off, you know. (laughs) and every molecule of your body vibrates. That's Slayer. You need a little bit of that in your life. Buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a song from the jukebox for you that we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what have you got? Jim, I've been thinking about some way to uh, honor one of my favorite bands of the 90s on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of a very tragic event, the death of the band's lead singer and founder. That would be Mark Sandman of a band called Morphine. Uh, Sandman died at the age of 47 in 1999, so now we have the 10th anniversary of his death. Morphine has been celebrated with some posthumous recordings trickling out over the last few years. I think those studio records they made in the 90s, though, are still the core of their legacy, and I want to go back and play a track off, off one of their best albums called Yes from 1995. This band consisted of Sandman on two-string bass, Billy Conway on drums, and, and Dana Colley on baritone saxophone. They specialized in something they called, with a very tongue-in-cheek kind of attitude, low rock. You know, all these low sounds in the sonic spectrum. This was at a time when grunge was happening and alternative rock, and then you had these really sad second- and third-hand grunge bands all ripping off the style uh, that started in Seattle. You know, the Bushes of the World and mm-hmm. the, the Seven Mary Threes. Morphine stood outside all of that. They had a unique sound, all their own, really hasn't been duplicated before or since in a lot of ways. And it consisted of that very minimalist approach to the music, more atmospheric, as much atmospheric as melodic, and Sandman's brilliant lyrics. He was heavily influenced by pulp novelists like Jim Thompson. Say only enough to say exactly what you mean, and no more and no less. So his songs kind of painted around the fringes of this narrative, and you got into some really creepy uh, moods with (laughs) with what he was singing about. I love this band. Uh, They they, they created a, a great sense of groove, sometimes up-tempo, sometimes more uh, sensual and atmospheric, and with the lyrics, created little mini-movies. I mean, if they were to make videos, and I know they did, but I think every one of them should have been in black and white, and there should have been some guy (laughs) with a fedora, smoking a cigarette in the corner, and he's telling you the story. Here's one of their best songs. It's called Radar, in honor of the late Mark Sandman on Sound Opinions. Got to the driver of my car Past the dogs, past the guards 
March 4th, 
She drags his body down to the edge of the swollen river Wrapped in a red velvet curtain Stolen from the movie theater where she works Quiet as a whisper Under the stanchions of a washed out bridge She cuts him loose And watches as the floodwaters spin him round once And carry him away Hi, this is Mike from Cleveland, Ohio. Just finished listening to your Scary Songs webcast and had to add a couple. Uh, in the murder ballad category, would love to add Jim White's The Wound That Never Heals. Great song about a black widow, and it's just so enhanced by White's just totally detached delivery. Now, on the soundtracks, if you've got the old Quake 1 game CD, pull it out, put it in your CD player, and go to track two and start Trent Reznor's soundtrack for the game. If you put your speakers outside in your bushes and keep the volume way low, trick-or-treaters will stop in the middle of your driveway and wonder what the heck is going on. Great effect. Thanks a lot. Bye. My name is Eric Murphy. I'm calling from Aiden, North Carolina. I was just listening to your show about scariest rock songs, and I was shouting, you know, you got to play My Mind's Playing Tricks on Me by Ghetto Boys. You guys didn't fail me and played it. I wish you had played the last verse, Bushwick Bills, because what was so sort of freaky about the song to me is, you know, the video and knowing, you know, Bushwick Bills was a little person, and he was dressed up, you know, for Halloween, and this year, Halloween fell on a weekend. Me and Ghetto Boys are trick-or-treating, robbing little kids for bags until that omen got behind us. It's a great song, man. Scary song. Thanks for playing it. Love your show. Take care. This year, Halloween fell on a weekend. Me and Ghetto Boys are trick-or-treating, robbing little kids for bags till that omen got behind our rags. So we speeded up the pace, took a look back, and he was right before our face. We were in for a squab, no doubt. So I swung and tried to take him out. He was going down, we planned. But this wasn't no ordinary man. He stood about six or seven feet. Now that's the creep I be seeing in my sleep. So we tripled No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. I'm sorry, I can't operate on that vehicle. But doctor, you took an oath. That RV, it's my son's RV. Oh, doctor, isn't there anything you can do? I'm not a miracle worker, Sheila. I'm an RV surgeon, trained to save the lives of large injured recreational vehicles, which is definitely a real profession. When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms.